This morning we're considering Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 through verse 46. So now to the reading of God's holy word. When the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the holy angels with Him, then He will sit on the throne of His glory. All the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate them one from another, as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And He will set the sheep on His right hand, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right right hand, Come you, blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Surely I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these my brethren, you did it to me. Then he will also say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not take me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you? hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you. Then he will answer them saying, Assuredly I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Seek the Lord's blessing on this, His Word. O gracious God in heaven, we rejoice and give thanks to You for Your Word and the great truth that it contains for us, that it is our only infallible rule for faith and life to lead us and guide us in what we are to believe and how we are to live. And so as we come to this passage, we pray for Your Spirit to give understanding and wisdom And that as Your Word goes forth, in the power of the Spirit, we pray that it would find within our hearts that rich, fertile soil which brings about a great and abundant fruit for Your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may have seen or perhaps read about a recent interview with billionaire entrepreneur Elon Musk that was uh, conducted by the staff of the Babylon Bee. Now, though the Babylon Bee is known as a Christian satire site, 
Their interview with Musk was anything but satire as they asked some uh, serious questions about his perspective on faith and Christianity. And at one point in the interview, when asked about whether he would accept Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior, without giving a direct answer, Musk replied that he agreed with the principles that Jesus advocated, particularly citing uh, turn the other cheek and seeking forgiveness, treating people as you wish to be treated, and of course, love your neighbor as yourself. But he then added... Well, if Jesus is saving people, I won't stand in his way. I mean, sure, I'll be saved. Why not? Now, unfortunately, the interviewers and those in the studio took this as a yes to their question that they had asked. And I say, unfortunately... Because it appeared as though Musk had no real understanding of the gospel. There was no confession of sin or repentance, no seeking forgiveness, and in fact there was not even a a change in his appearance to denote any kind of uh, humility or even joy or gratitude at the salvation that he thought would be a good idea. Well, this could certainly end up as a crucial disservice to Musk. That is giving him a false sense of security that he's now saved. And so has nothing to worry about in the coming judgment. And sadly, there are many who who walk around today with that kind of false security. Now we know that God alone knows the hearts of men. And so it's possible, and we certainly can pray toward this end, that the Spirit will use this interview to truly pierce Elon Musk's heart and bring him to a true knowledge of and sincere relationship with Jesus Christ. And one of the ways that this would be revealed is through the bearing of good spiritual fruit, through which Musk's faithful obedience to Jesus Christ as Lord. That is, there would be an evident change, not only in his beliefs, but also in how he lives his life. As we see in our passage this morning, it's not enough to simply agree with the principles that Jesus advocated. A person must actually believe in Jesus, believe uh, who he claimed to be, believe in what he accomplished for sinners. And they must also bear evidence of that faith by faithfully committing their lives to serving the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. If there's no fruit that comes, it likely indicates that there's no real faith. And without faith, no one will enter the eternal glory of the Lord on the last great day. Well, as Jesus <clears throat> closes out the Olivet Discourse, He emphasizes this point as He once again appoints His disciples to His return at the end of the age when the Son of Man, even Jesus, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, will sit as judge over all the earth. And this is an important truth. 
not only for Elon Musk, but also for each of us as we see that day approaching. Are we serving ourselves in this life? Or are we faithfully serving King Jesus because of our faith in Him and the salvation that He has accomplished for us? Jesus begins in verse 31, When the Son of Man comes in glory and all the holy angels with Him, then He will sit on the throne of His glory. Now this is similar to what Jesus had already said back in chapter 24, verse 30, when He said this, The sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Now consider the truth that's being asserted as Jesus says this. First we know that throughout the Gospels, Jesus most often uses the title Son of Man to speak of Himself. And this phrase, the Son of Man, comes from the Messianic prophecy of Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, which says this, I was watching in the night visions... And behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought Him near before Him. Then to Him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. And His kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed." This prophecy is speaking of the event that Jesus is now speaking of. His return at the end of the age. And as Jesus continues here, he refers to the Son of Man, that is himself, as a king who will sit in judgment. Remember the promised Messiah would be a king from the line of David. But this Son of David wouldn't just rule over Israel. His kingdom would be over all the earth. And as we see in Daniel's prophecy, it would be an everlasting kingdom. Well, next we note that this mighty king is truly coming again. Now, though he hasn't yet left his disciples at this point, Jesus has been preparing them for quite some time now, for the time when he will be taken away from them. And from this point, it's only going to be just a few days from this point when he'll be taken away from them. When he'll be arrested and then he'll be put to death on the cross. And though he will rise again from the dead on the third day, and then he will spend uh, the next 40 days uh, with them, after that time he will ascend to the right hand of God the Father in heaven where he sits, even now, reigning and ruling over all things. But the disciples aren't to worry or fret in his absence. Because Jesus assures them that he will return again at the end of the age. And until that time, those who follow Jesus must be about the work that they've been called to do. Being witnesses to the gospel in both word and deed. And so Jesus, the Son of Man, this King, is coming again. But we also see that He's coming in power and glory. Now as you read through 
this passage here and even the one in uh, Matthew 24 and even uh, Daniel 7, we certainly see that what Jesus is describing here is, is really indescribable. I mean, when you just say the word glory, it's, I mean, it kind of encompasses a lot. And he uses that word several times. He'll come in glory. He'll be then surrounded by all the heavenly host, all his holy angels. That in itself will be a glorious sight. And then he will sit upon a throne of glory. Now we may wonder, what's that going to be like? Well, I have no idea. (laughs) But we do know that it will be a sight beyond what we could ever possibly imagine. It will certainly be a glorious, amazing sight to see. Something incomparable to anything that has ever been seen before. And as we consider this description, what's clear, what becomes clear, is that Jesus' second coming certainly couldn't have happened in 70 AD, as some falsely claim. Remember that the Olivet Discourse was in response to the questions of the disciples back in uh, chapter 24, verse 3, who seemed to connect the destruction of Jerusalem when Jesus made the reference about the the temple and the stones not left being uh, one upon the other, that they kind of connected that to the return of Christ and the end of the age. Well, truly what Jesus describes here is a climactic event that that again is incomparable to anything that has ever happened and ever will happen until that time. And yes, the destruction of Jerusalem was a significant event. But Jesus did not return in power and glory as is described here with all the nations gathered before him. Well, as Jesus continues, we see that this king, the, the son of man, even Jesus will come as the righteous judge of all the earth. He will come to render this judgment from that throne of His glory. As we see in verse 32, all nations will be gathered before Him. Now again, previously in in, uh, chapter 24, verse 30, Jesus spoke of the tribes of the earth who would gather before Him. And then in Daniel 7, it's the peoples, nations, and languages of the earth. And here, in chapter 25, verse 32... It's the nations. Well, all these terms are simply ways to speak of all people indiscriminately, regardless of their race, their ethnicity, or even the political borders. All people from every nation throughout all ages will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And this is what we see played out in Revelation uh, chapter 20. John says, I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, 
and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. And books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one, according to his works. And so that's all the dead. All those, uh, I mean, it's not doesn't address those who are alive at the time as a return, but all those who have died throughout all the world. Even if they drowned in a, in a shipwreck, they'll be raised up to stand before Him in the judgment. But as Jesus describes here, as that judgment comes, there are two key parts to this judgment. The first part is a separation. Verse 32, And He will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And He will set the sheep on His right hand but the goats on the left. Now again, we shouldn't think that whole nations are being separated out from others. And certainly it's not a reference to Israel being separated out from the Gentiles. But as we've just seen, the nations is just a way to speak of all people. Besides, even in so-called Christian nations, where righteousness and truth prevail, we know that not every citizen in those nations is a true believer in Christ Jesus. It hasn't been that way throughout all history, and it's not likely to be that way in the future. So again, Jesus is addressing all people, and he's gathering them before them, but when he's, who is he separating? He's not separating the nations from one another. He is separating people from one another. In fact, Jesus clarifies that the separation is between the sheep and the goats. Though a shepherd may have goats mingled with the sheep out in the field, but when he calls the sheep, they obediently respond because they know his voice. But the goats pay no attention. They're unruly and they're destructive. In Scripture, the Lord is often referred to as the Good Shepherd. And the sheep, of course, are the people of His pasture, those who believe and trust in Him. The goats, then, are the rebellious ones in the world who reject the call and command of the shepherd. And so Jesus is talking about the separation of believers from unbelievers, again, out of every nation. Or as he used in the parable back in Matthew 13, the separation of the wheat from the chaff. The good fruit and the worthless rubbish. Right now, the world, and indeed even the church, is a field For the sheep and the goats mingle together. And again, it crosses all political boundaries. But when Jesus returns at the end of the age, He's going to separate His sheep, His people, from the unbelieving goats of the world. And so that's one part of this judgment, is this great separation But there's also a second part to this judgment. After the separation, 
there's going to be a great declaration made by Jesus, the righteous judge. And this declaration is either going to be a word of condemnation, for example, guilty, guilty for those who don't know Him, or it will be a word of commendation. For example, as we saw last time in the parable of the talents, well done, good and faithful servant. And so we see this declaration precipitated even here in this separation as the sheep are called to the right side of the king and the goats are called to the left. Right side, left. (laughs) The right hand, the right hand is the side of honor and privilege. When you sit at the right hand of the king, that's an honorable position. But the left is the side of condemnation. And this tells us that as soon as the sheep are separated from the goats, both are going to have an indication of what's coming next. They're going to know whether they're going to be honored or whether they're going to be condemned based on where they've been separated to. Well, in verse 34 is where Jesus shifts the language from the Son of Man to the King. But again, both are one and the same person, that is Jesus. He says, Then the King will say to those on His right hand, Come, you blessed of My Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And so Jesus is here issuing an invitation to the sheep to come and take possession of the inheritance that He secured for them, the eternal kingdom of heaven. And this invitation is only extended to the sheep, to those on His right hand. Only those who in this life sincerely confessed and professed His name will inherit the kingdom. Secondly, these sheep are blessed of My Father. That is, they're truly are their true children of God. They're His beloved ones who've been adopted by Him through faith in Jesus Christ. And they're standing before God Almighty on the day of judgment is that they are blessed. And thirdly, Jesus reveals that the inheritance of the kingdom has been prepared specifically for them. And it's been prepared for them from the foundation of the world. This really is humbling. It was God's plan and purpose before all creation to establish a glorious eternal kingdom for those whom He would save. Those who Paul tells us in Ephesians 1 who are chosen in Him before the foundation of the world. This is God's sovereign decree of of election. That is, it's what He predetermined before He created anything. That He chose those who would be His and He purposed to establish a kingdom specifically for them and for His Son, Jesus Christ. What a great blessing that is. That God would 
choose undeserving sinners and plan to give them an inheritance in a glorious eternal kingdom. Well, with this invitation comes the commendation for these sheep and an acknowledgement of the good works that they've done in the name of Christ. Verses 35-36, For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. In other words, they did good things for the king. But in verse 37, the righteous sheep seem a bit caught off guard. Basically, they say, Lord, we... When did we see you with all these needs? We don't recall you ever being in need for anything. And if you think about it, their, their surprise really isn't all that surprising. After all, a king, a king has power, a king has authority and has honor and, and oftentimes has great wealth. And kings aren't usually to be found in need. Right? They typically have more than enough food, drink, and clothing. And they have a, a place to live, usually a, a great palace. And they typically aren't the ones getting tossed in prison. Now, it's true they may get sick, but their illness isn't an open invitation for all the people to come and, and see them. So when these righteous ask, when did we see you in such need? Well, they had a valid question. And the king responds in verse 40. Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. And so whenever they did some good deed to benefit one of their fellow citizens, even the least of the citizens, they were actually serving the king. By doing good, they were revealing that they were true, true children of the Father and, and blessed by Him. Now note especially, though, that the, the close identification that the King is here making, that is in the King, again, is Jesus, that He's making with His people. As a King, we often think of kings as being high and lofty and looking down on all of their subjects. But this king, Jesus, is not ashamed to call his subjects his brothers. And so closely does he love each one that whenever someone does good to them, shows some, some kindness to them, well, Jesus takes it personally as if he was receiving that kindness directly. Beloved of God, consider the implications of this for us. As we seek to love and serve one another, ministering to one another, praying for one another, helping and encouraging one another, as we do these things, we're serving Jesus, our Lord and King. Indeed, this is why throughout the New Testament we find these one another exhortations. Because by loving and serving one another, we are actually loving and serving our Lord. 
But there's something else about these deeds that's worth noting. If you look carefully at this list or this these acts that they have done to him and to others, they're actually very little things. Right? Common everyday things. Things that we could do to serve one another. Right? There's no big task here. You don't have to do something great and that's that's noticeable to be commendable or to be commended by the Lord. Now, you don't have to become a pastor or a missionary. You don't have to go and be a great evangelist and convert a hundred souls. You don't have to be a part of the next big revival or movement of God or, or start some mission outreach work. You don't even have to defeat a Goliath in order to receive the Lord's commendation. Sometimes we get caught up in that. Feel like we need to, to do something big for the Lord. When all He's requiring us is to be faithful with the little things. All you need to do is simply trust in Christ for your salvation and faithfully serve Him in the small and little ways, even by just simply loving and serving one another in the body of Christ. And here we're reminded of those first two servants in the parable of the talents, that they were faithful with a little, and yet their reward was great. Well, so too the Lord calls us to be faithful with the little things that He's called us to do. Now, it's true. Sometimes He does call some to, to do big things. And the Lord gives, uh, again, as we, we saw in the parable of the talents, as He gives talents more to some than to others based on their ability. More, some have more talents and opportunities. And with that certainly comes more responsibility. And this is true for, for pastors, for elders, for, for deacons, for missionaries, for teachers, for those who are called to those offices. There must be, these must be faithful with what they've been truly given. And there's nothing wrong with being. And it's a good thing to be called to do those things and to, to fill those offices. And we certainly, sh certainly should be open. But brothers and sisters... I want you to be comforted by the fact that the vast majority of the faithful of the faithful sheep who will be gathered together in the kingdom of heaven they're not going to be pastors and teachers missionaries or great theologians or even great heroes of the faith no most of them the vast majority of them are going to be the ones who lived ordinary lives, doing ordinary things, even the small and barely noticeable things. But they've been done out of love for the brethren and in service to our precious Lord. These are the ones who are invited to come and claim their eternal inheritance 
These are the ones who enter into eternal life in the glorious presence of our Lord and Savior on that last great day. But what of the unbelieving goats on the left? Over here. The goats are over here. (laughs) (laughs) We're not divided. (laughs) What of them? What happens to them? Well, they're justly condemned by Jesus on the day of judgment. Verse 41, to those on the left, he says, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Now this condemnation comes on several levels. First, we note that the sheep... Right. The first thing that happens is that the, the, the sheep are commended. Openly and, and publicly, the sheep are commended and invited to claim their inheritance in the kingdom before, before the goats come under judgment. So the sheep, you've done well. Blessed of my Father. Take your inheritance. And then he turns to the goats. Depart from me. And the significance of this order is for the public justification and vindication of the righteous before the wicked. See, in this life, we know that the wicked mock and scorn the righteous. Even abusing them and and oftentimes persecuting them. But on the last great day, the wicked are going to stand in shame as the Lord Jesus openly commends the very ones that they've despised, that they've hated, and that they've mistreated. Beloved, this is the justice That we often pray for. That the Lord would vindicate us before our enemies. And we pray that that it would happen certainly in this life and in those situations. But we know if it doesn't happen in this life, it will most certainly happen on that day of judgment. We will be vindicated and we'll be off claiming our inheritance. And all those goats are going to be filled with shame. And earlier in in Matthew 24, Jesus said that the nations will mourn. They will mourn in shame because of the way that they've treated the righteous people of God. And they will know that their coming judgment is justly deserved. And so that's why he deals with the sheep before the goats. Secondly, you want to note that there's actually a second separation. The first was at the initial gathering together before the throne of Christ, where the righteous sheep were separated from the wicked goats. But now, now the separation is more severe. I mean, that was bad enough. Because, again, being on the left, they knew things weren't going to be good. 
But now there's another separation. And this is a separation from the the good and merciful presence of the Lord Himself when He says to them, Depart from Me. Get out of My sight. This is the beginning of their judgment. The separation from the goodness and the mercy of the Lord where they will only now have They'll still be in the presence of God because God is everywhere. But they will only be in the presence of His just and holy wrath that will be poured out upon them forever and ever and ever. No relief. No comfort. Not even for a temporary time. Well, next we see the declaration of their condemnation you curse it whereas the righteous were blessed of the father and declared to be blessed of the father even before the foundation of the world these are cursed because of their inherent sin and unbelief they still stand in their sins and with sin comes that great curse finally comes their punishment the everlasting, unquenchable fire. But there's also an important association. The devil and his angels. Again, the righteous receive the inheritance of the kingdom because of their association with the Father. And they were blessed by him from the foundation of the world. And he had prepared this uh, kingdom for them. But the wicked receive the flames of hell. Because they're of their father, the devil. And as John tells us in Revelation 20, after the judgment, the wicked, along with Satan and his angels, and even hell itself, will be cast into the lake of fire for all eternity as their judgment. But what evidence is given for such severe condemnation. And that is severe. To be cast out from the good and merciful presence of God and to be under His wrath forever. Well, Jesus says that these wicked goats did nothing for Him. They didn't serve Him. They didn't honor Him. They didn't revere Him. They didn't even acknowledge Him. Again, take notice that the chief evidence against them is failing to do these little things. Like that third servant in the parable of the talents. They were lazy. And they did nothing good. They didn't even do the bare minimum. Their lives were focused on serving themselves rather than on serving King Jesus. Now nothing is said, at least here, about what they did do that is, the sins that they did commit, whether it be idolatry, murder, adultery, or theft, these, there's silence about these, what we call, maybe big sins. Not that they weren't guilty of them, surely they were. But again, Jesus is emphasizing their lack of faithfulness in serving Him in even these little everyday things. If they're not faithful with the little things they're certainly not going to be faithful with the big things. 
Now we might think that they have a valid protest in verse 44. Lord, when did we see you in need? This is a seemingly good question. When would they have actually seen the king, Jesus, in need? I mean, outside of the the first 40 years, first 30 years of the first century, when would people anywhere throughout all the world, throughout all time, have seen Jesus in need? How can they be judged when they weren't even given the opportunity to serve Him? But Jesus assures that there is no excuse. Because their failure to do these little things to even the least of these means that they did nothing for Jesus. They served no one who was in need. They showed no kindness. They gave no food or drink. They brought no comfort or help. Throughout their lives, they failed to love their neighbors as themselves. And in failing to love their neighbors, well, they failed to live and act like Christ. They didn't imitate Him, and they didn't conform their lives to Him. They bore no good fruit in His name or for His glory. Now, ultimately, they didn't act like Christ or seek to imitate Him because they didn't believe in Him as their Lord and Savior. And unbelief is really the greatest sin Because unbelief is the sin that ultimately condemns and brings down the just judgment of God and is the everlasting punishment that He will bring. So they have no excuse because they did not believe in Him. Brothers and sisters, be mindful then of where you stand. Even now, before God. Are you a true sheep of the Good Shepherd? One who believes in Him and and trusts in Him for your salvation and who hears His voice and obeys Him when He calls you? Or are you just a goat mingling with the sheep but who really has no interest in the shepherd? Has no interest in believing Him Or obeying His voice when He calls. Truly, if you believe in Christ, then seek to bear fruit of your faith by loving and serving one another. For when you're faithful with these little things of loving and serving one another, you're ultimately loving and serving the King, Jesus Christ, and bringing all glory to God Most High. Let's pray. Gracious God in heaven, we rejoice and give thanks for your word and we thank you for the challenge as we consider these great things. We would pray, Lord, that you would enable us by your grace. First of all, the most important thing is to believe in you, to believe in Christ and what he has done for us. The forgiveness of sins that He has secured for us. May we truly be humbled in heart and and come before You, confessing and professing Your name and faith. But Lord, we pray that You would continue to sustain us and give us the grace 
to be faithful in doing these little things. Loving and serving one another. Because we know that by loving and serving one another, we are loving and serving you, our great King. And that this is truly pleasing in your sight. Lord, we do pray for those out there who may be goats. Who do not believe. We pray for, for Elon Musk and others like him. Who even when a, a, approached with the gospel. Just kind of give no recognizable, sincere response. That would indicate true faith. So we pray that there might be a seed still yet there. And that it would be watered and it would grow. And that He would bear great fruit for Your glory. But Lord, there are millions like Him. Many, thousands, even in our own community. Who may have heard of You. Who may appreciate some of Your teaching but who do not truly know You, who do not believe, and who do not seek to conform their lives to Your Word and to Your will. Father, we pray that You would help us to be a great witness to them. And that through that witness, many of them would come to know the truth and be drawn to You and be saved. And would join with us even on that last great day. And you will say and extend that invitation to those on your right to enter into the kingdom and claim that inheritance which Christ Jesus our Lord has secured for us. Father, we just pray that you would continue to bless this, even in our homes, especially in our own hearts, drawing us all closer to yourself, and that we would be faithful witnesses for your glory in all these things. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.